Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. So um, this is the Standard Times editorial board. We're here with um, members of the Pioneer Institute, uh, and as is our... Uh, practice. Uh, we'll introduce ourselves around the table first. Uh, I'm Jack Spillane, the editorial page editor. I'm Tom Birmingham. Tom is a consultant with uh, what's, what's your I'm, position? I'm em- employed by Pioneer, but as, as you know, I used to be the president of the Massachusetts Senate. <laughs> <laughs> we are all aware of that. He's a distinguished senior fellow at Pioneer. He's been there for okay. four years. Two now. years. Two, two, yeah. Okay. Uh, Jamie Gass, director for the Center for School Reform at Pioneer Institute. Uh, Beth Perdue, editor. Great. And and uh, Kara Kandel, who's also a senior fellow and the author of this book, new book on charter schools, will be joining us uh, momentarily. So, uh, first of all, really grateful for you folks taking the time to meet with us, and we're also really appreciate uh, your willingness to run our pieces and a variety of different pieces of pro and con on topic. We just uh, we say it to a lot of the editorial boards, but you folks are particularly good uh, in your coverage of K twelve education in the sense that you have lots of different points of view represented in your page and that's really great and healthy. I mean I think that a lot of times these policy topics around K twelve education reform are contentious and thorny and difficult difficult yep. and we are really grateful and appreciate that you folks sure. uh offer points of view. So um so anyway, uh, one of the big reasons why we're here is so is this is the this past year has been the 25th anniversary of the landmark Massachusetts Ed Reform Law that Tom and Bill Weld and Mark Roosevelt wrote. That makes me feel very old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm sure you're going to lead into it, but I'm curious about your perspective on everything given that history. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, I mean, I, I I started working in Chelsea for Boston University before Ed Reform, so in 1991. Yeah. Uh, you know, BU had a partnership for 20 years running the schools in Chelsea, and I worked for their management team. And it makes it certainly makes me. I feel like there's in education. There's sometimes like kind of dog years. You know, like it's a lot of. <laughs> uh, you know, adds a lot to. But really, there's two conversations going on in this country about K-12 education. There's everything that Massachusetts has done, or most of the things that we've done in the last 25 years, that has led to historic gains on really every measure of academic achievement. The, the NAEP is the sort of the gold standard, the nation's report card. Uh, we have been number one in the country um, going back to 2005 was the first year. We were number one in both reading and math, every grade tested. This is Kara. Hi, Kara. Oh, Beth yep. Hi, so nice, nice to you. Jack Spillane. Nice Welcome. We've got your book. And here we have a practice of introducing ourselves so that yeah. somebody listening will yeah, you'll it's be It's nice if you do you yourself and your title yeah. or how oh, we would identify you. Right now? Yeah, right yeah. Yeah, yeah, uh, Kara Kandel, Senior Fellow, Pioneer Institute, Senior Fellow in Education. Okay, yeah. thank you. And Kara, I'll just refresh that we're on the record and we're taping the meeting. Wonderful. Thank you. Okay. So anyway, I just was kind of giving them the kind of the overview of Ed Reform and where we are and how you know really there's these two conversations there's the things that Massachusetts has done on uh, really the most progressive funding formula in the United States it's a key component of what Tom and others put in place uh, I mean we have the most it, it, so the money is progressively as it needs to be spent in the areas of the highest need uh, you know, New Bedford Fall River Lawrence Chelsea Springfield Holyoke etc gets the lion's share of the at reform dollars, we're spending about nine billion dollars uh, at the state level and and local level combined annually in K twelve education, which is, you know, given the size we have about a million students in Massachusetts, that we have a per pupil expenditure of you know fifteen sixteen thousand dollars per kid. You know, to give you a, an example of the other side of that is, is that there's places like even Utah, where they spend six. So it gives you a sense of how the Enormous, I mean, uh, investment. I mean, it's been hundreds of billions of dollars that we have spent in the last 25 years. Uh, and then on the other side are high academic standards, generally speaking, for much of the time grounded in, you know, classic literature, poetry, and drama, Moby Dick, you know, uh, Hawthorne, Melville, you know, Emily Dickinson, Frederick Douglass. I mean, all these things that are kind of the touchstone of a great liberal arts education. That's what Tom and others really helped put in place. 
teacher testing that's aligned with those standards, the MCAS test, which is correlated with as it gains on both every domestic uh, measure of student achievement, SAT, ACT, NAEP, um, and you name it, in terms of student achievement, Massachusetts is either number one or number close to number one in the country. Uh, the core of education reform remains solid, but after 25 years, it is perfectly, it's not shameful to make revisions. Yep. For instance, how could we, in 1993, have possibly anticipated Romney care. I mean, it was absolutely impossible. And so it appears that we, our foundation budget underfunds the cost for health care. And it's nothing shameful to say after 25 years we ought to revisit it and adjust it. The core of the act remains quite solid, but there are areas on the edges where, where we should address when, when uh, the times have demonstrated that we underestimated what the costs right. would be for, for the uh, of course, the, 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 the trick is how do you reform it in terms of funding because uh, from the city's standpoint the funding problems may be one issue from some of the one type of suburb might see the funding issues as another issue and another type of suburb might see the funding issues as another and how do you get everybody yeah, to agree? That, that's a great point and we can't reopen the foundation budget and say we're only going to address health care costs. Or I special mean, ed. Or, or special or, ed. Yeah. English I mean, is a second we, language. We, yeah. we can't do that. So we can, if we open it up, we not only risk a, 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 a tremendous expansion of interventions, but we also risk going backwards, yeah. you know, retreating from the standards because I think the standards make perfect sense in conjunction with the increased money that we've given to education. We should have high standards. But there are many constituencies that would rebel against the standards and would try to repeal them. So the risk in reopening it is that there's no guarantees as to what the result will be and that there's no way we can limit consideration to, say, two areas, uh, health care cost and special ed. Yeah. Uh, it can't be done. But the solution isn't not to reopen it. And let no, it no, right. I, I don't think the solution is not to reopen it, but we have to go in to that with our eyes wide open and be careful yeah. that uh, it doesn't become an opportunity for a uh, reactionary. Yeah, uh, sure, and these days that's quite yeah. possible. Yeah, right? and, I, and yeah. I think the thing about it is, is that when you look at the great deal of additional state resources and the MCAS and the standards and the charters and the teacher testing and all the accountability measures, sort of the time we talked about the two wheels of the bicycle, right? And there's no question it, it's fraying. I mean, the evidence that we have is that we're still number one on the NAEP, but we are among, and you can see it in both English, and it's even more dramatic in math, we are among the handful of states that are in decline in terms of our, over the last uh, several administrations of the NAEP. So really since 2011, we're declining. And, okay. and we're kind of hanging on by our fingernails. There are other states, whether it's New Hampshire or whether it's Minnesota or Florida, that are being much, much more aggressive. And I think Tom is, is uh, you know, modest about it, but it was a unique and kind of golden time of leadership because you had uh, Bill Weld and Tom and Bill Bulger and, uh, and others in the legislature that were really understood this deal and kept fidelity to it. That's the, the important thing. And, I mean, we've made a strong case that there's been fraying on the academic quality side with the Common Core. <coughs> We have not been a big fan of this move to MCAS 2.0, which is really just PARC. PARC has lost really almost all of its member states at this point. Just yesterday, New Mexico, which was among the last, is pulled out. So it's not even a viable testing consortia. Massachusetts with Rhode Island is sort of charting its own destiny, but it's still largely PARC, which has turned out to be, frankly, a loser. And uh, we, so we have gotten off the path both on the funding side uh, and the uniqueness of it was that there was uh, strong urban leadership that understood that it had to be progressively spent. But after 25 years, it's not sure that if you open it up that it couldn't get, that you couldn't see backsliding. There are way more oh, yeah. suburban legislators and rural legislators yeah, yes, than there are urban funny. ones. Yep. And without someone, frankly, like him sitting in the middle of it saying, I mean, he held up the budget. You know, he and Finneran got in this famous budget fight and it was, 
him standing out there making sure that they were properly funding Chapter 70. Uh, and that's the kind of proactive leadership you need in the legislature. And frankly, you need the same kind of robust leadership in, with the governor and, and the executive governor. governor. Because yeah. Yeah, in negotiating the funding uh, issue with uh, Bill Weld, Weld, who I always thought of as perhaps a libertarian, described himself on the funding issue of head reform as a communist. <laughs> Bill Weld, the communist. But he was very progressive on those on issues. education. Yeah. And, and we were able to make those generous, progressive uh, distributions that if we were to reopen it, I don't know what happens. Because although urban legislators were excited about the formula Suburban legislators less so, but now they've seen how it's worked out, and there's much stronger uh, resistance from the suburban elected officials than they were back in the day, where it was kind of abstract. Now they've seen the differences, especially when you have places like Lawrence that are spending the money stupidly. And if you're in Andover or North Andover, and you're getting, you know, you know, 10% of your education budget from the state. And here right next door is Lawrence getting 90%, yeah. and they're spending it on, on, you know, fiddlers and, I mean, all sorts of foolishness. It drives them crazy, and I understand why it drives them crazy. Yeah, sure. But uh, that's why, to reiterate what I said a moment ago, if we reopen it, we have to go in with our eyes wide open and prepared to uh, resist what might be some reactionary... Uh, and just to ask you about the climate back then, because was the it as I think um, Jack was referring earlier with his point, um, was the climate of suburban versus urban voices similar to is now, or would you say suburban voices perhaps might have a stronger voice right now? Much stronger now. Yeah. Okay. Because they've they've had the experience of it, whereas it was kind of an abstraction. Uh, okay. In a very complicated piece oh, so of legislation. So not because so much they automatically have a stronger voice in all pieces, but because they're paying more attention in a different way. Yeah. yeah. And, okay. And they're, they're living through it, and, and, and they're seeing. And more legislators from the suburbs now too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's right. And I would say, so the other piece of this to me that I think the suburban voice is really winning out is on the accountability piece and this retreat. I think we've seen an increased retreat from real, actual accountability. And I'm not on whose part. On well, for example, so I live in Brookline, Mass. And um, I got to tell you, the other soccer moms in my neighborhood, they're like, I don't want to make it. I want to pull out of the upcast. I don't like that. It's because for them, it's just another, another unnecessary hurdle that we have to jump over, right? Okay. Whereas for so many kids in this commonwealth, and one of the things when Jamie says we're backsliding on Nave, one of the other things we need to realize is that we're not moving on the achievement gap anymore. Yep. We were moving on the yep. achievement we gap, moving. and we've stopped okay. moving on the achievement it, gap. Of course, it's hard to move when you're at the top. Otherwise, no, but I'm talking about we're not moving anywhere. State. I mean, the achievement gap, we're closing the differences in education performance and between now just working class and poor communities and wealthier ones, but now it's expanding again. And yeah. when you look so at this... So uh, we're spending a lot more. What's the trigger for the expansion, then, for expanding again? The lack of yeah. funding? Or no, no, well, the, no. the uh, local communities can, can go to their own tax base. And expand funding for education. So that is whereas a lack of funding. In, whereas in urban areas, they're just, you they just really don't have the right. no, they can't. So last year, we had the House pass a bill that included both um, special ed and ELL yep, and right. health care, I guess. Uh, and uh, the Senate's bill only included, no, it was vice versa. The Senate's bill included both right. ELL and special ed. Yep. The House bill included only ELL, and the governor was down here, and he said, yeah, I want to target it just for the urban communities, you know, that they need more money. Yeah. I'm just, that's my yeah, recollection yeah, yeah, yeah. of, no, I mean, I, of, of yeah. what he said. So what's yeah. your take on those three approaches? Uh, you have a fourth or... Well, you know, again, or, I, I think that the coherence of, I mean, the reason why we're the envy of the country and the only state that's frankly internationally competitive in math and science is that they put the whole package together. The thing I think that we get worried about, and I mean, it's, we'll talk about it later, but you see going back to the Hancock case, which is a case about more money that was you know, killed off by the state Supreme Court. You see it with the recent charter ballot initiative, and you see it even with this, um, the Foundation Review Commission, is that they're trying to pull apart various pieces of it. So you're gonna get more money, or you're gonna get a charter cap lift, 
but it's not going to be part of the grand bargain. I mean, the reason why this worked is that it was both good policy and it was good politics. They, they, they put more accountability and standards and testing in exchange for the money. And I think the thing that we get worried about is you can't really have a conversation about more money without, hey, what are the five strategies we're going to have to address the achievement gap? Whether that's charter schools or METCO, which is a Springfield and Boston have a small, it's about 3,300 kids, uh, desegregation program, which basically sends poor and minority kids to suburbs. Uh, Vogue Techs, there's the Vogue Tech schools now, which are the envy of the country, uh, have wait lists, right? So... From our point of view, anything, any, and I think one of the reasons why they've had a difficulty, I mean, that Foundation Review Commission uh, was initiated in 2015, well, or it's 2019. Now, they may push it across the finish line, but for the last three years, they have been unable to do that. And I think it's because they're not really putting together a grand bargain the way they did in 93, where they're trying to, you know, square the politics and the policy in a way that makes sure that all the different players in it are either getting something or being held accountable for whatever they're getting. Did they not include the accountability standards in the legislation that was proposed last year? No, see, what, I mean, it's a, it's, in a way, it's a larger conversation, but in, in full disclosure, right, Tom and uh, Governor Salucci and uh, Speaker Finner created an independent kind of audit agency that evaluated the academic and financial performance of school district. I mean, I remember working for the state and we evaluated New Bedford and it was, you know, 2004 or something before I came to Pioneer. That was done away with in 2008. And, uh, and the reality is, is that we have this very opaque process of ranking schools one to five, but schools don't reform on their own. Whatever the school district, they're the composite of the school. So if you're not holding the school committee and the superintendent accountable, just the principal in the school, it's not likely to improve. And I think that's part of the reason why, as Kara was alluding to, is that we've kind of watered down the standards on the MCAS, we've watered down the academic standards, we've retreated on the accountability, and there's this unresolved, you know, undealt with, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, inequity that's beginning to show itself. And so, you know, we're still number one, but that's obscured. We've been kind of punished by our own success and that it obscures that we had serious crises that we're dealing with in urban districts and and uh, and on accountability and the standards and the, and the testing. I mean, you know, it, Tom has mentioned it before, uh, not, yeah, not, not today yet, but about half the legislature has signed off on a bill to get rid of MCAS and high stakes testing altogether. Yeah. That's probably not gonna happen this year or maybe the next four or five years. But it's on the horizon. The, the anti-testing momentum yep. is growing. And I would I would add to that by saying so. First of all, this financial piece, right? <clears throat> yes, more money for English language. I mean, I'm a former teacher and teacher trainer. Yes, more money for English language and learners and students with this. And I buy yes, and, and kids bilingual, bilingual kids, right? All all of these things. But without accountability, without accountability for how the district is spending those monies then weighted funding for students with special educational needs, weighted funding for English language learners doesn't matter. If you don't have the right teachers, the right human capital in the room to deliver what those children need, then it's a waste of money. And so saying goodbye to financial oversight and accountability, I would love a measure that says we need to know how much of a district's spending is actually going to classroom resources and to kids rather than a central office. Yeah. Yeah. And the second piece I would say is, on the, is toward the retreat on accountability. I mean, one of the great things that Ed Reform did was say, we are going to have clear standards for the first time and outline skills and knowledge the kids need to have to succeed in the world. And I don't think that anybody at Pioneer is saying that, oh, proficiency has to be the only way to measure. You know, but you, if you look at even the federal, the Every Student Succeeds Act, this is a trend, there's this larger trend of sort of backtracking and saying, well, we want multiple measures of whether how children are succeeding in school or what how schools are serving kids. But when some of those measures either make absolutely no sense, right? So you've got psychometricians saying that actually doesn't work or are so soft as to really not hold anybody accountable, mm -hmm. then I think we've had a problem. I mean, I, worked, I also worked in standardized testing for starting in 2001 with the advent of the No Child Left Behind Act. And I can tell you, it was, a, it was a painful process to get to a place where standardized testing 
worked as one indicator, yeah. just one indicator, but, but a really important one of what kids can do. And so this idea that we're retreating rather than saying, well, let's look at different ways to, we can still use this, but let's also look at different ways to look at district performance. Has, has this retreating from standards been accomplished by the legislature and governors? In all honesty, it's been driven mostly by the Department of Ed and the Board of Ed. I mean, they, well, well, right, but, but, yeah, but driven by them. We have a certain kind of tacit you know, uh, approval of the various administrations. I mean, I, look, I'm going to flatter Tom again here because he's earned it. And the fact is, is that we really haven't had a lot of robust leadership on K-12 education in the state since about 2002. We went through administration of Governor Romney, who didn't do much, frankly, and rode on the success of that reform. We had eight years of Governor Patrick, who uh, we made it mapped out a case, dismantled some of the components <coughs> of it. And the truth of it, we haven't seen a lot of robust leadership from Jolly Baker yet either. And Are you advocating for the, the standards and commission, the review commission, to come back? I think what they need to do is they need to have a bill that actually is reflective or learns the lesson from 93, which is you got to put together the bargain. Yes. More money, yes, by all means, but you have to make sure that you hold firm in terms of the progressivity of the funding, and you got to hold firm on the accountability yeah. and the standards and, and, the and I mean... I mean, yeah, and the options. I mean, that's... It's, it's I mean, tricky. It's as tricky as what you're talking about because then so much of what happens is it becomes bureaucratic. You're spending right. money just to get okay. something done and check a box instead right. of actually accomplishing what you're talking right. about. Right. And all of that funding could end up going right out the door and not hitting kids and not right. hitting movement forward, right? So it, that's tricky as well. I'm also curious, can we go back to your statement about Lawrence? How do you know Lawrence is spending their money? How do we look at the budget of a yeah. school system and determine what's good use of, from the outside looking in? What's yeah. good use of, what, what are the key indicators for Lawrence that say well, not doing a good job? Lawrence did some crazy things. They, they spent a lot of money on tap dancing. They had bagpipes. Okay. And then when you couple that, if it works, fine. If bagpipes producing good results, I'm all for bagpipes. Right. But if you spend your money on bagpipes and you have lousy results, okay. I think it's reasonable but, to draw an inference that they're not spending the money as yeah, well as I they should. I thought there's been some stuff coming out of the Department of Education that Lawrence is a model yeah. of its turnaround. So, so Tom is definitely, well, it has, he, he's referring to yes. that, that yes. I think is probably 10 years or so ago. I mean, okay. you remember they have a receiver, they had a receivership, yeah. the Commissioner right. of Education. Yeah. But the reason why they had a receivership is it's exactly the stuff that right. Tom's identifying. Okay, gotcha. Right. And, and but they did put, what's his name? I'm blanking on his name. Rivera? Jeff Riley? Jeff, Jeff Riley. Yeah, yeah, Jeff yeah. Riley came yeah, in at Lawrence yeah, yeah. and did a terrific job. And, There's but no one, question but about One of the things it. that okay, he, yep. he did, which is very unusual, and frankly, you know, Kara talked about the money making sure that it actually gets yes. into the school and the classroom. The original ed reform law had it so that 80, 90 cents of the dollar was going to be spent at the school level. Right. Okay. And only one district, Barnstable, did that. But okay. all the others, particularly the large urban districts, I mean, look, you go to, I worked in Chelsea. I worked for Boston University. I worked on accountability. I did 80, 90 school district reviews when I worked for the state. If you go to most urban districts in the state, you're going to find, you know, superintendent's office has several floors of clerks and sort of, you know, experts in administrivia. That <laughs> is a problem. And, right. and, and Riley address that. When he became receiver, you know, he he began to devolve the authority. He had been a principal and he had been a school leader and he remembered what it was like, as did the guy in Barnstable, that rather than being beholden to the central office, you push the accountability and the uh, authority the over budgeting and everything to the school level. And so especially if the schools were high performing. So politically everything comes down to politics. Uh, uh, I'm an old guy, so I remember in 93, 92, yeah. the climate was we had had a collapse across the country yeah. of American educational right. standards. And the, the impetus for the reform was because people were afraid that American school children were not doing anything in the basics right. of math and, right. and reading and doing everything and all these uh, per peripheral things. And that, and that was the, the push for... Right. We're in a very different environment now because we've had a big union mobilization right. against that. Right. Uh, They've chipped away at it for 25 years. Right. And now we're almost in a whole new era right. where, and as you know, because you've read, the issue in New Bedford is uh, support for charter schools, right. but we can hardly run a city government, you know, right. and we don't want to give up our fire department, right. you know, to uh, uh, 
by the city schools. Now, some of that might be hyperbole, right? Um, on, on top of the the mayor's uh, part, but but there's no doubt that um, uh, urban districts have problems with their tax base now, sure. yeah. where yeah. They, they 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 find it hard to do that. So even people right. who are inclined to to you know support reform just say until you until you fix the funding system. You know, we don't, yeah. we don't know what we can do. So let, let me, I mean, I mean, first of all, you know, you folks ran a pretty tough piece that I wrote about the mayor, and which I'm grateful for, and I, and I, I appreciate that. And I wish you were here the day, the few days after. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. It, it's what I said at the beginning of that healthy kind of back and forth. I mean, we, through circles and everything, we're hearing lots of stuff that was coming out of the mayor's office that we're kind of outrageous, to be honest with you. And But I think the thing that's... And, and look, I think in a certain regard, he has been a very good mayor. We had conversations with him early on when he was first elected. And in other areas of municipal service, he's been very good. And he's clearly a very talented guy, and I think he's got clearly a statewide ambitions, etc. But I think the thing that we need to remind ourselves <coughs> is that we are 25 years in debt reform. And... 85% of the money for the New Bedford Public Schools comes from the state. It's not local dollars. There's a little bit of a feel with this mayor, and I think it's true of a lot of mayors, frankly, that that's their dollars. It's not. It's actually state money. And if you had to pick between sending your kid to a really high-quality elementary school that the state is going to pay for, say it's a charter school, and a high qual- or a lower-performing um, district school that the state's going to pay for, it's a no-brainer what you're going to pick. You're going to pick the, kid, the, the option that makes sure that the kid who's in third grade uh, or in, uh, is going to be able to read by the time they leave third grade. Unless you're a family that's not paying attention to that. that that's true. You know, and I think, look, I think that's one of the challenges, and it's one of the reasons why we're so pleased with the book that CARE has done, is that, I mean, this is the best book on the best group of charter schools in the United States, and she has been you know, working for 10 years accumulating the data and the research on all the component parts. I mean, we're really proud of her and proud of the work because it's outstanding. And, um, but I think the thing is, is that we, there's a lot of complexity to the topic, often ones that are not easily sorted out, either on a ballot, which we had no role in and think it was a big mistake, uh, historic mistake, actually. Um, but the flip side of it, too, is, is that, you know, when the mayor or other municipal officials uh, are kind of trading on people's lack of knowledge about the topic and claiming, for example, that the fire department isn't being properly funded. Well, the reality is if the fire department isn't being properly funded uh, and they're using ed reform dollars, that's not really well, in bounds. Not directly. But that's yeah. the kind of the insinuation is that if you, if these dollars from the state don't go to this school or our schools, it's going to hurt the fire department. And the reality of it is, is that there are laws that prohibit ed reform dollars from going to other municipal services. Well, sure, but you but, know, but it's, it's if, you know if we have to fund this, we won't be able to fund that. Uh, uh, right, uh, but, it's but, not, but it's not the, it's, it's not New Bedford that's funding it. Right, that's, I mean that's, that's the, the point. The, the vast, the vast. It's like more than I think it's eighty five percent actually. Yeah, yeah, I have yeah, to think it is. My yes, computer. Yes, yes. That is, is coming from the state, yeah. and I think you make a really good point. If a parent isn't informed, but the fact of the matter is, I think what any parent, even those who don't speak the language, etc., is informed about yeah. is like, well, I, I, ha- I heard that school's better than this one. And right. I think to Jamie's point, the money's all coming from the same pot. Yeah. Right. It's all, and in fact, the charters are paying their facilities on their own. They're raising money. They're doing so. They're doing on less per pupil. And let's also not pretend that even when it's you know, New Bedford is still getting pretty generous per pupil in comparison to most communities like it. Not only in the state, but in this country. Right. Right. I mean, we spend. And I'm, so my background is in international comparative education. That's what my doctorate is. Yeah. The amount of money that we spend in this country per pupil on education just far blows away. Just like healthcare, else? Yeah, really the outcomes yeah. aren't necessarily what right. they should be right. versus the amount of money because going in. Because we're not in, so. spending it on the right thing. But you're not talking about New Bedford in relation to uh, other Massachusetts cities. You're talking about other cities across New the Bedford country. New Bedford is not underfunded in comparison to other Massachusetts cities, though. New Bedford yeah, gets a generous per yeah. pupil from Well, right, but it consistently yeah. ranks as among the third or fourth lowest performer right. right. in the state. But that's, I mean, you can say, is it because we're not funded enough or yeah. is it well, because we're... Well, there's also we're, a question of yeah. where's that money going, right? Yeah. So, like, if you really look at in any... And I will put to you, and I... Could probably find data to back this up, but this is just 20 years of experience, right? That where money should go 
is to the high quality teachers that you're putting in front of kids. In every other cent that goes to yeah. sustain a bureaucracy, that goes to sustain the central office, et cetera, right. is doing nothing to ensure. And one of New Bedford's biggest issues in my in the schools that I've time that I spent down in the schools in my observation, really, really hard time attracting high quality teacher talent. So then the question is, what decisions do you make about not spending money on the central office and paying a little bit more to attract that higher talent from all over the place, right? And I'm not going to remember because it goes back before me, but I swear that we've actually done stories about how many people are actually in administration in the school system. Yeah. Didn't we do that? Well, we did that one time, um, and it was a big issue and in I the city. And I think their contention was that they were, they were actually going less than yeah. some sort of average. But that, I, I don't yeah, know if I'm remembering so that right. It sort of goes up and down, but um, there has been an effort over the last 20 years to, um, to, streamline. To, 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 to streamline. And sometimes it goes well for a while and then it goes back up. But I think it, overall it's downward a little bit mm-hmm. at least, but maybe not enough. Um, I want to, if we could talk, uh, the two things I want to talk about, ELL and politics. Yep. Uh, politics, I don't know whether Tom can focus on this. What's the coalition that you assemble that protects standards and the review commission, mm-hmm. you know, because I'm trying to think the unions are strong in the cities, you know, they want the money, but they don't want the standards. Mm-hmm. The suburbs are ambivalent about the standards. So and you have the Republicans who are so small that they need to have a coalition of some sort of Democrats. What's the coalition to get this done? It's, uh, it's a great <laughs> yeah. million-dollar question. I'm yeah, not, it's at least a million dollars. <laughs> um, we were very fortunate that we had a Republican governor who was uh, approaching education issues exactly the way the Democratic leadership in the legislature did. That may have been an anomaly. I don't know that that will be replicated today. Looking at the the players, I I have some serious doubts. I'm not prepared to give it up. Even with a Republican governor who's now at least talking about doing something in this arena? You know, uh, he may be talking about it, but I was disappointed. I, I thought you could explain much of his first term by the narrowness yes. of his victory. That he just, I mean, it, it wasn't even on election day. That the narrowness of his, I thought you were going to say narrowness of his ambition. The, but, I mean, I, I thought the narrowness of his victory may have explained the narrowest, narrowness yeah. of his ambitions. That's why I was disappointed when he came in for the second term, because now he had a very comfortable majority, and his inauguration was disappointing. You know, whereas I was prepared to cut him some slack, saying, look, you just barely got got through. You're going to be very cautious. But then when he gets a resounding vote in favor to still maintain that caution, it might be more... That's who he is. Uh, so you you may need a Bill Bulger or someone to get this through the side door because yeah. I don't know how you get. I mean, this is one yeah. of the things that's important to me is because I I'm a big believer in in, in ample funding of education. Yes. Want, but I'm also a big believer in standards. Yes. And so I, I and you know I've had many fights with the local unions over the years about the standards. Yeah. And, and all. And I'm I'm just trying to think of how you assemble a coalition. This year, because the governor doesn't seem, as you said, to put his head up too high politically. And I'm just trying to think, you might get it from the Republicans and the suburban Democrats, but you had that big vote against um, the charter schools. So I'm trying to think of where does it come from? Yeah, No, it's a very good question. The vote against the charter schools, I think it will be a full decade before there's any consideration given to expansion of charters. And so it wasn't just a one-time loss. It, it's going to have multi-years. Beyond the caps established, right? Yes, you yeah, don't mean yes. that. Okay. Yeah, and, and the, the uh, analog to that is this Hancock case in the early 2000s that Tom at the time cautioned the proponents of more money to not doing. And they lost. And, you know, that was in the early 2000s. It's 2019. They still haven't been able to push more money across the finish line, right? Even though they had eight years of uh, very uh, talented and popular governor, Democratic governor, and so, you know, that the I think what you're seeing, and I think it, you know, it's a little bit like Shakespeare. It's like kind of pox on both their houses. 
we don't have the same quality leadership that we did in the legislature as we did in the 90s, and we don't seem to have the same quality of leadership either in the executive or in the Board of Ed that we did in the 90s. And we know now, in terms of the achievement gaps and the backsliding, that that the decades of neglect are sort of resting on our loyals, laurels is coming due. And you know what that coalition is, I don't know, but it is a crisis. It's a crisis of leadership, frankly. The big thing that made the distinction between us and all these other states is that we put together the deal on the standards and the money and the accountability and the charters to make it all happen. Some states did just testing or more money or you know, little bits and pieces, but there was no coherence to it. And I think that the, the, the fact that it was state driven by the governor and the legislative leaders got people invested in it too. They took it seriously. And they, I mean, as you, you, to your point, there was a, a you know, a fire bell in the night up in the 80s with the Nation at Risk report about how we weren't competing. The reality is that Massachusetts is the only state that's competing. The rest of this country is still stuck in the in the path that it was in the 80s. Yeah. Except, and, I would say, the ones that are creeping up on us on me. Right, yeah. right. Like, yeah. Florida looked at Massachusetts and right. was like, oh, do you know what we should do? Yeah. Standards, accountability, yeah. and choice. Choice. Yeah, I, I agree with you. <laughs> and, and, I mean, look, we've been critical of Jeff Bush, but his tenure in office, Standard he did some stuff in, tech, in Florida that yeah. has contributed. I mean, we've been very critical of him you. in the yeah. Common Core and so, other things. So, um, I agree with you. Money without standards can be a right. waste. That's right. That's right. Uh, but, or the right standards, maybe I should say. But, but, but so how, if this coalition is going to be difficult this year, yeah. I don't really see you guys raising your profile in lobbying the governor because he's the one who has to stick his well, head up. You know, and, I mean, and, you know, so I know he's close to you. He was a founding member. Sure. All, all of that, but in a sense, someone needs to say that. When he was here, I asked him, "What's your vision for the next four right, years?" Right. And he kind of—that was the one question. Yeah. He he had the data on everything yeah, yeah, yeah. except for what his vision was. And, <laughs> and, 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 that is and, telling. And so I, I I just think you guys have the vision. Yeah. You know, you know, we may not agree with you on everything, but we, you know, some things, you know. You have the vision, but I don't see. I see you lobbying us, right? right. And not, not, not the governor. Yeah. I, I say the governor because I think it's a better bet than yeah. maybe, the, maybe the, some of the suburban legislators. But yeah, uh, I mean, I'll, I'll give you a good example, and, it, and in a way, it cuts both ways. Part of the original reform law, there was a history contest that was supposed to join English, math, and science. You know, um, we don't have great method, measures of how we're doing. Uh, you know, vis-a-vis other states in. Um, uh, in U.S. history, but anecdotally, there's a We the People contest. It's been around for 30 years. We've never Massachusetts has never been in the top 10 states. States like Alabama and Virginia. And that was in the that was in the Ed Reform Law, and you know they haven't implemented it. These are the same students who are number one in the country in the subjects we do test. Number one in the country in math. Number one in the country in science. Number one in the country in English. But where we don't test, as Jamie indicates, we appear not to crack the top 10. Yeah, and civics has gone away. Yeah, yeah. And, and so, you know, that is both on the standard side and the accountability side. Charlie Baker was on the Board of Education when they established those standards and when they passed the test, when they established that there was going to be a test that, you know, got the plug pulled on it in 2009. So, you know, we, in the op-eds we've done, I've, you know, we've been critical of the governor on, I mean, we've been clear that we thought that the it was a strategic blunder to go after the ballot initiative. Um, we said that to them publicly, and we've been very clear. I and mean, Kara is working on a paper that is a postmortem on the the ballot question. We've been very critical of their decision to go to the the uh, uh, MCAS 2.0, which is just park. Um, they've stayed with the Common Core. I mean, it's not one point of uh, causality that why we're backsliding or not, but and it's not in one body of the you know House of the Legislature or the other. Or, or the governor. It's kind of collective. And I think that's part of the message is that it can't just be one branch of government or one house of the legislature that provides the leadership. you got to put it all well, sure. together. If we had a more balanced legislature, I might agree with you, but, but yeah. it's so lopsided. Yeah. So yeah. I, I guess uh, I don't understand you guys have to be strategic sure. too. We can't yeah. just always be you know, you know, spitting into the wind, but, but at a strategic point, yeah. you know, because you know, really... If Baker does what Well did, right. you know, and just said, okay, 
this is what I want, and I will give you money. Right. I want standards. And that's the compromise he has to make with the legislature. Yeah. I mean, um, as, as Tom said, I think Weld, and we've done pieces, I think you folks have run it. I mean, Weld was a unique uh, political animal, you know, and I think he, you know, enjoyed the, the give and take, and he enjoyed the theater of politics. He was very good at it. And, you know, he... You know, he provided very unique leadership. I mean, it, it, you see that. I mean, in the Common Core battles, we've been to a bunch of different states. You meet with governors; they're not like Bill Weld, you know. And um, so, I think you know, Tom's right. There was a kind of golden moment. And I, but you know, the reality is, the governor does need to use the bully pulpit to drive these uh, discussions. We we need it. He needs to do that. The state needs to do that. He's popular. He's accrued this these successes twice now, and he needs to expend some of that political capital. The other, to, to take it down just a, a level, too, I think the other place where I hope, and to, correct me if I'm talking out of turn here, where Pioneer can really um, urge <laughs> better decision-making is, is with the Board of Education and so the regulations that they have put forward. I mean, one very simple example is just how we view districts that are in need of turnaround. Why is it that a district basically has to objectively fail thousands of kids before we say, now it's time for an intervention? Now it's time for support. And I actually don't even like the word intervention. What I would like to see are much earlier indications on multiple measures of how you know, discrete groups of students are doing. And then for the state to come in and say, we're going to support you. Mm. Whether that's in the form of, it's not always about punishment. It's not always about the stick. The stick has a role to play. But, you know, and what are the tailored interventions? It's not, it can't be this copy and paste. Well, this worked in Lawrence. And right. I think the commissioner would say that too. I think the commissioner, in fact, I'm pretty sure he told me, I wouldn't advise that what I did in Lawrence is going to work at Holyoke. Right. That's not the method. And I think that Pioneer has a role to play here. I mean, the other thing is um, I'm working on a paper right now about how they interpret student growth and what that means. Mm -hmm. And uh, an emerging number of psychometricians are saying it means absolutely nothing. What it means is is that you're, you're telling kids, you're telling families that some kind of growth is occurring. Statistically speaking, you can't actually yeah. say that. See, and so we're letting districts that are failing kids off hook right. because Bessie has put in place regulations that don't make The thing is, it, is that whether it's the progressive funding or the MCAS or the standards, uh, really what they were able to, they created a giant mechanism that helped deliver equity. That's really what they were able to do. And the component parts address different parts of it. You know, Kara's referring to the growth model. So uh, uh, the Patrick administration is, is going out the door, implemented this new accountability measure, which is, I think, sort of statistical separate but equal. The reality is, is that more and more, they're going to just compare New Bedford to Fall River. What Tom and the architects that have reformed did is we're going to compare the leafy suburbs to Chelsea and to Holyoke. And, and uh, you know, that's what you have to do. That is ensuring and they then through the charter schools or the voc tech schools or the higher standards put as much money as they could in the system to get as many kids uh, poor and minority kids over the higher standard and what we've seen is a, sort of this eroding down of expectations i mean 30 percent of the kids approximately in new bedford are dropping out that's a crisis right it was it, it if we can't figure out a way to get more kids into charter schools or, I mean, the best high school option in New Bedford is the Voc Tech School. Yeah, right? that's a whole other so, issue. Which the mayor and the school committee doesn't control. So you have the best elementary option is Aladomar, and the best high school option is the Voc Tech School, right? They have they wait lists, right? Both have problems with being opt-out instead of opt-in. Um, yeah, which sure. is but a whole what I'm saying is but, you know, before they get to high school, 50% of kids are leaving this district. Yeah, yeah. And, and so yeah, and so you know yeah. the, the the same old template isn't going to work. We have we're so fortunate in this state because we have really great charter schools. We've got a national model in the Voc Tech schools. I mean, uh, the Voc Tech school down here is tremendous, right? Yeah. And we have we have these this Petco program. It's a DSEG program. It's only in two cities. It could be we've made a case and mapped out and modeled how you could have it in. All middle cities could have like a Medco program, or you could have an exam Medco school. Program, sorry. Medco is Medco. Uh, nineteen. It's about fifty years old. It was a desegregation program that sent at the time mostly black kids to um, leafy suburbs. Okay, and okay. the state, yep. you know, pays for the transportation costs of that, and and the, and, and the and the suburban district pays for a lot of it too. So, okay. but we have the charters, the Voc Tech, um, the the Medco program. 
Um, you know, Boston University ran the schools in Chelsea for 20 years. With the proper leadership, we could be expanding these things that we know work. And that's what you could couple up with more money. Yeah, yeah. that's the grand part. Yeah, what I'd like to see, and I think the mayor was talking to Desi about this, is um, have a charter, maybe Alamo with their 2,000 seat, uh, 1,200 seat proposal, uh, take over one of the very troubled schools in the Latino neighborhoods of New Bedford. Have you guys seen that happen elsewhere? Because it seems like a good idea. So, in other words, in other words, have the engaged parents applying to the charter school, which is good, but you just get the engaged parents. You know, so so take. Okay, we're going to give you this school to run, and everybody who's there is who you get. Now, see what you can do. So you and, could do that. Yeah. You, know, you could also simply have a common enrollment, like Boston has started, which means that you, I go to enroll my kid in that's school. That's like an opt out kind charter, of thing. Right? Here's it. Yeah. But that still doesn't that still skew to parents who are engaged versus Not the parent who is. To, I mean, if every parent, when I sign my kid up for school, I mean, this has been it's been like this for the common enrollment, including charters, is new in Boston, but. Boston, for example, is a huge district of choice. So when you go to and take your kid to school, right. you have to choose. Uh, I'm, I'm talking about the parent who doesn't have a clue as to what the right. good schools are, no, 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 as no. opposed Abs- to the, the researcher. Ab- absolutely. I, mean, I, I could just talk about ELL because that's that's such a big issue in New Bedford, and I, I'd like to get what your guys, what your take mm-hmm. is on that. So right now, we have a 22 percent of the city of New Bedford is Latino. Many of them. Undocumented. The schools that are failing the worst are all in Latino neighborhoods. The Cape Verdean schools. Do a little better, not a whole lot better, but a little better. So these Latino schools are are just really struggling. Up until three or four years ago, when I think it was when Peter Durkin came, uh, we had like one ESL professional in the city, and now we have seven or eight. Whether they're doing a good job, I think it remains to be seen. Because again, it's all in how you do it, not not just that that you're spending money. But but I was distressed when I heard that the Senate. Wanted to reform both ELL and special education. Right. The suburbs have less of a motivation to do ELL, and so the House, you know, which is is more conservative, had uh, passed just the special ed. So where do you come down? Because these ELL neighborhoods, because not all New Bedford neighborhoods are equal, and what's going on in some of the schools is, is, right. is not. No, I mean, it's, look, it's, it, I started off my career working in Chelsea, which is seventy-five, eighty percent Hispanic. It is, uh, you know, the, you know, the reality of it is, is that we, I'm not sure that anyone has figured that out yet. You know, I think it's true on the special ed side. It's also a thorny one, uh, you know, the, and yet, you know, there's a lot, there's supposed to I be, mean, in a nutshell, both special ed and bilingual ed really are supposed to be transitional. They're not supposed to be programs that, that go on forever, right? I mean, I mean they, they will go on, but the students should be transitioned out of it where possible. And we have a very generous, uh, we, I mean, on special ed side, you know, uh, nationally, the average is about 12% of kids are special ed. In Massachusetts, it's 17%. So we are, in some instances, over-identifying kids that are special needs, right? And we actually have a, a uh, publicly funded kind of, uh, it's a kind of private choice option where we're sending kids that have spe- severe special needs to private providers, right? And other states have even been more energetic on that. But the reality of it is, is that, you know, each one of them kind of has to be addressed. And I think we have to, on the on the bilingual education side, it's a significant, you know, barrier to if a kid is moving back. I mean, when I worked in Chelsea, there were kids that were going back and forth between Puerto Rico all the time. Yeah. It's hard to get a cohort of kids that are getting the full freight of your you know, educational experience in New Bedford or Chelsea, wherever, if they're moving back and forth. Mm-hmm. And yet that's the reality of the world we live in, you know? So, but, but I, I mean, the most of the issues around it is, and, I th- and it cuts to your question about the suburban urban issue is that uh, the issue is the funding around it, right? So urban districts are going to get more money in special needs kids and with bilingual educate or ELL kids. Uh, under the Chapter 70 formula, they're going to get more money. That starts to become difficult when you're negotiating the larger budget deal with the suburbs because they're, well, they're going to be disadvantaged in that, yeah. if, if, so to speak, financially. And the fear is that, that when you open up reform, right. it'll be worse. That's right. Uh, yeah, that's uh, right. That's so that's because right. <clears throat> cause the, the suburbs all have SPED problems. Right, you know, that's, that's true. But yeah. many of them do not have ELL issues. Right. And, uh, you know, I mean, I, I get your point about. ELL being a transitional program, yeah. but the fact is that the schools that are failing the worst, and 
in New Bedford, we have about half of them are Puerto Rican, but half of them are about Central American, yeah, sure. and they don't go back and forth because right. they can't easily. Right, right. And um, or maybe they do, but I'm, I'm not aware that they go back and forth that as, as easily as the Puerto Rican population. Right, does. right, right. And <clears throat> so, what what philosophical thoughts about that, that problem? I, I feel yeah. I have a few, yeah. but they're more yeah. from a teacher perspective yeah. than from having studied a lot of schools. Some very some with very high performing ELO mm-hmm. populations. And I think that the money is obviously that's one thing, and the extent to which it can be better weighted to reflect the needs of those schools. And I'm not just talking to the district level; I don't trust like to the school level to better reflect the needs and the resources that those children need. But so it's it's always fascinating to me when people say, "Well, we hired a bunch of ELL specialists or ESL." No, <laughs> in these schools, when it works, it is a full-on cultural shift that every human being, every adult in that school, is an ELL teacher or a teacher of ELLs because you have a full school of ELL children. So you're not doing this thing, which we used to do, by the way, with students with other special educational needs who are on IEPs. You said, well, just pull them out and I'm going to give Johnny 10 minutes of math. No. Every adult that Johnny encounters throughout the day needs to know that Johnny learns math this way, et cetera, et cetera. And that's just something that we do. Sort of the way Alma talks. That's, when we that's talk to exactly them. what Alma does. And yeah. so when I go to Alma and I visit and I see what they're doing, it's a language-rich environment. And all of the teachers know, you know, that, that hey, and these kids aren't even speaking the same Spanish, right? Now, if you go into, and this is, again, Alma, it's not because it's a charter that it's able to do these things. It's because it's more nimble and it takes advantage of those autonomies in a really important way. And too often when you go into district settings, and I spent a lot of time in districts throughout the country, by the way, what you see is this prescription. So here's your ELL specialist, and this is the textbook that you will use, and this is how you're gonna treat this children, and this child may be from this Spanish-speaking country versus that versus whatever needs those kids have at home. It has to be a wholesale cultural shift at the local level. I don't think unless the legislature is going to make specific investments in the way we think about um, teacher certification and teacher training, that you're going to see schools making those changes just with more money. Can I just tell you something? That, and I've been suggesting this in my column for years, and no one ever listens to it in the city. But I, I just the, the school districts in New Bedford, the elementary districts, all run north-south. So all the inner city districts are in one district, and then all the, the peripheral districts of the, of the city where the middle-class populations live are all in others. And I've suggested, because it will never happen, just make the districts go east to west. And then you will have the middle-class kids and the inner-city kids in one school. And the middle-class parents and those kids will model. It's kind of a, 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 um, a subconscious thing in a lot of ways. Like the middle-class parents are engaged, extra school activities, doing homework. All those things are valued. And so you have those middle-class kids in the same school as the inner-city kids. And that kind of modeling seeks through. And that's why I think you have at Alma, because you have both middle-class and, and, and underclass kids at Alma. But at Hayden McFadden or at Parker Street, you just have one class. And it's the inner-city kids. And Unfortunately, you're going to see the middle-class parents run. They will revolt. Every time, every time I've, I've suggested it, people have said, oh, no, we would never do that. In fact, we, we built... about doing it, but we Bedford has built two new school elementary schools in the last 10 years. One of them is in a totally middle-class neighborhood where they could have, adjacent to where they built an inner-city school, they could have combined them easily, and they didn't. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing is that if you look at the charter schools, which uh, often draw regionally, you look at the regional Vogue Tech schools, I mean, the truth is, even in the Vogue Tech world, the regional Vogue Tech schools are significantly, generally speaking, significantly better than the ones that are embedded in the district. So they're not part of the bureaucracy, right? METCO is a program that sends ur- you know, urban kids to suburbs. These different choice models, which are both proven and they are um, you know, long established at this point. I mean, charter schools have been around for 25 years. Vogue Tech's have been around forever. Uh, METCO's been around forever. Uh, they, we, have these, we have these models that could help deliver the equity and some of the social integration yeah. you're talking about I am right, not. Right. I am not big on choice. Yeah. The, the, the Vogue Tech School has taken. They. 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 they t- no. No kid with attendance problems, which all the Latino mm-hmm. kids have. No kid with um, discipline problems and poor grades. Even a mixture of grades can get into those schools. And so all the middle-class families now who intend to send their kids to college right. are the majority of the Vogue Tech kids now. Yeah. And kids who are never, ever going to go to college can't get into any of these vocational problems. Well, They're in the comprehensive 
high school at New Bedford where they, they try to get more vocational stuff, but they don't have the machinery. Right. They and don't they have the. They can't duplicate. They've got yeah. rules. So. Well, you know. I think the thing, I mean, the one thing that is clear, though, about the Voc Tech schools is that they, so the statewide average is about 17% of special needs kids. The Voc Tech schools, it's basically double that. I mean, they, they have, and so you know, the thing about the charters, you know, they have generally speaking been very good at addressing achievement gaps as have Medco, which are kind of more, you know, they are more, I mean, generally it's been a... a Sped kids, but not behavioral problems. Well, I mean, Kara can talk about that, and it's in the book too, but they've actually come close to parity yeah. in terms of having enrolling the population. It's been a big so, shift in but, the past 10 years. But, oh, six. What, what I'm saying is, is that the, uh, you know, these different models can address the different components of it, of the achievement gaps. The Vogue Tech schools have been particularly strong on kids with special needs. And that is, you know, and, and so I think that rather than, you know, whether it's the mayor or the school committee or the, you know, decrying Alma or even I know there's been tussling back and forth with the with the greater with the new with the um, regional Vogue tech school. You know, I think the thing is to start, I mean, there's a superintendent, he's retired now in Edmonton, Canada. So it's a district that's about 20,000 students larger than Boston, Edmonton. Uh, Angus Macbeth is his name. We brought him several times to Massachusetts to uh, tour. What he did was he devolved 80, 90 cents of the dollar to the school level, like we talked about, the way he had reform mapped out. And then he gave parents in the city a passport every spring to send their kid to any school in the public system that they wanted. And that's an example where you have kind of a controlled choice, which might work in Massachusetts because you still have the, don't have the union issues. The parents will mo- move with their feet, and the ones that the schools that don't perform will get shut down. I mean, they don't have uh, in in Canada. Actually, the action became in the earth, in the traditional district, so charters actually joined. Yeah, district. I think that's great. But what I'm saying is, is that rather than I mean, the thing that we get worried about is, is that, and I'm going to pick on Mayor Lang. He did it with the MCAS, right? He kind of raised the, you know, uh, the flag on fighting the MCAS test when he was here. The current mayor is sort of doing that recently on the charters. What they really need to do is they need to kind of look in the mirror and say, we've got layers of bureaucracy here. The thing that we're doing, the leadership, he's the chair of the school committee, isn't delivering the results that they are at the at the at the uh, Voc Tech school or the the uh, you know uh, schools like Alma. What can we do? Uh, yeah, in, I, I, in, in terms of creativity to change. The way an urban school district looks and functions, and it right. could be but, the budgeting, or it but, could be this kind of passport. You're not getting at like thirty percent of the city is minority, fifty percent of the comprehensive high, high school is minority. You see that you know, yeah, yeah. but that's not at Vogue Tech. It's only twenty percent. Right, 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 right. So it's it's. I, um, I guess I, from my, my my point of view, I think it's really important. We want to get parents and students more engaged in their education and more knowledgeable about the education. And we want to reward that, I think. So the more choices you have within the system, whether it's the charters or the Vogue Tech or whether it's even in the public system where this guy has been candidate, the better. Because like that's going to hold people more accountable and it's going to have schools that are kind of better served than yeah, that's Will Gardner's uh, argument, but and it really does work for the kids, the people who get into those schools. Yeah, it's the, the schools that are left behind that get worse. Well, but so here's uh, yeah. Well, hmm. okay. <laughs> I mean, so, so I think the Vogue Tech is one issue because yeah, mm-hmm. it's exactly so you have to get in right. But mm-hmm. the charters, so I mean, you don't have a you don't have a concentration of charters here to the extent that we see in other places. But to to say that well. You know, uh, the comprehensive high school, 50% of the kids live in poverty, 70%, whatever the numbers are, there is data beyond data that shows that charters, like, look, you look at those Boston charter schools, their economically disadvantaged numbers are higher than anyone's, minority students higher than anyone's, closing gaps, knocking out of the park, Pioneer Charter School of Science, right, in Everett, Massachusetts. Which we're not affiliated with. Which we're not affiliated with, by the way, right? They have a higher percentage of ELL students than the district, and they are knocking it out of the park. So I think that part of what Jamie's getting at is when whatever politician stands up and says, well, it's the MCAS that's killing us, or it's this ELL population that's hurting us. It's like, no, 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 no. It's very possible. We have ample data to show that it's possible. But instead of playing the blame game and saying, well, let's roll back accountable. I don't want to be accountable when kids fail. Or let's pretend like they're not failing by saying, oh, here's, they grew this much. They, they grew from like 
not being able to read to being able to read two sentences. You don't, that's not the, you don't want to hand that child a diploma, right? It's, it's possible, it's happening, and there needs to be more openness, whether it's saying, you know, we're going to bring tons of charters, maybe that's not the answer, but maybe it's saying, maybe what we need to do is make this district look more charter-like. Let the district schools function in a way that is more charter-like, that's more what Will's doing. So yeah. that there are these autonomous. How, how, how would you explain the, the, the testing this year that showed some of the inner city schools in New Bedford were actually outperforming Alma? Well, so first. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll give my. I mean, so, I mean, one of the things that's happened, I mean, so we've had most of the gains that Massachusetts made, both nationally and internationally, were with the old pre Common Core standards and the traditional MCAS that was really put in place in time. And that was the gold standard. They released the questions every year, which gave the educators, the parents, and the policymakers a full, I mean, it's a more expensive way to do it, but it's a very sound policy, right? What we've had really since 2010, and now the NAEP data reflects this, is that we've had new standards, MCAS, uh, I mean, the uh, Common Core standards, really, which are, from our point of view, significantly weaker in both math and, and English. You've had a weakened MCAS, so to get rid of the MCAS, they they kind of made it, they watered it down. Then they did this park MCAS. We don't know which direction we're going to go. Some district's going to do MCAS, some are going to do park. Now we have MCAS 2.0. It's broken the trend line. I mean, the reason why NAEP matters, that's the external measure now. Mm. Because it's it holds the, the state. External it's, major. It, it's a consistent external measure that shows us over time not only how Massachusetts is doing, but how other states are doing. I mean, it's going to take a couple of years now for us to come up with reliable data on the MCAS 2.0. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.